Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This Lieutenant White came and showed a piece of paper. And Mrs. Mapp demanded to see the paper and to read it, see what it was. The first plaintiff was Jane Rowe, an unmarried pregnant girl who had sought an abortion in the state of Texas. We can't order you to salute the flag. We can't order you to do all these obeyances with reference to the flag. Can we order you not to do something to show something about the flag. I see that my white light is on, so if there are no further questions, I would save my further time for rebuttal. Thank you, Ms. Phelan. You have no further time. We'll hear now from you, Mr. Robbins. Do you remember this moment? Yeah. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I'd like to begin my remarks by addressing the questions regarding deception that are ah, yeah. So is that, that's actually from, must be from Colorado against Spring. A few moments ago. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't realize that that one was recorded. I don't know that I've ever heard it. This is Larry Robbins. He runs a private law practice now, but for years he worked in the office of the Solicitor General. That's the office responsible for arguing on behalf of the United States in the Supreme Court. I called him up because I wanted to know what it's like to stand there, alone, under the eyes of Rehnquist, O'Connor, Ginsburg, Marshall. What's remarkable, or it was to me anyway, the first time I stood up at the lectern, is how close to you the justices are. I always, I guess I always analogize it to sitting in a living room with nine very smart people who have thought about the same problem that you have, and want to ask you some questions about it, and your job is to answer them. Uh, that's how it felt to me, and I've done it 18 times, and it always feels like that. It's the Judicial Branch today on Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. And while I studied acting in college, on a whim, I took this one class on the First Amendment, where the only texts we were assigned were Supreme Court opinions. And thereafter, I took every single course that professor taught. And I've just carried a torch for the third branch ever since. Hannah, what would you say if I told you that the judicial branch is, quote, beyond comparison, the weakest of the three departments of power, that it's next to nothing? I'd say you were terribly misinformed. I know, but that was a direct quote from Federalist 78 by Alexander Hamilton. Because initially, the Supreme Court did not have that much power. But there was a night that everything changed. 
Lay it on me. You're going to love it. I'm standing up. The presidential election of 1800. The two major political parties, the Federalists <gasps> and the Democratic Republicans. <gasps> Thomas Jefferson, the Democratic Republican, beats the incumbent Federalist, John Adams. 76 electoral votes to 65. And Adams becomes what they call a lame duck president. He's just sitting around until Jefferson is sworn in on March 4th. It's like spring of your senior year, right? But Adams and his Federalist Congress, they don't just sit there. They go to work in the lame duck session. They pass this law called the Judiciary Act of 1801. And it's a new version of the Judiciary Act of 1789. I promise this is important, which creates a ton of new courts in the United States. And Adams uses his executive power of appointment and just packs those courts full of Federalist judges. The very night before Jefferson comes to the White House, they have appointed 16 circuit judges and 42 justices of the peace. These were called the Midnight Judges. Got all their albums. So you get a judge commission and you get a judge commission. Adams' secretary of state, John Marshall, he's just running around frantically trying to just give out these judgeships. And some of them didn't get delivered in time. Jefferson is sworn in. And one story goes that he sees all of these judge commissions on the table and says, oh, no, you don't. And he maybe throws them all in a fire. One of those potential judges, William Marbury, sitting by the phone with a ham sandwich, waiting for his commission to arrive. He goes to the Supreme Court to sue Jefferson's new secretary of state, James Madison. He says, hey, I was promised this judgeship. I didn't get it. He's furious. And the chief justice of the Supreme Court is John Marshall. Hold on. Hold on a second. John Marshall was Adams' secretary of state, the guy delivering all those commissions? Yes, and the chief justice. John Adams was like, all right, my term's ending. Can you just do both jobs until Jefferson comes to office? So William Marbury, he thinks he's got this one in the bag. He's asking the court to issue what's called a writ of mandamus, which is where the court orders the executive branch to do something to give him that judgeship. And Justice Marshall, stunning everyone, says, I'm sorry, Bill, I can't do that. Because that 1789 Judiciary Act was unconstitutional. And we, the Supreme Court, we have a job to do. And it is not to make people do things. Our job is to say whether or not something is constitutional. That case... Marbury versus Madison establishes judicial review. All right, I was wondering where you were going with that story, but this is pretty significant. A branch giving itself a major power, maybe the most major power. Yeah, and apparently it kind of flew under the radar at the time. Now, a lot of people make a big deal about Marbury versus Madison today. This is Catherine DePaulo. She's a political science professor at Florida International University. But at the time, it, it kind of came and went with a whimper, right? Um, because nobody really said, oh, gosh, now this gives the U.S. Supreme Court all this power of judicial review to declare something unconstitutional. You know, the, the courts were kind of an afterthought. They weren't really thought as, as you know, as equal as Congress and the presidency, at least in people's minds, uh, you know, in, in the, the Capitol building, they met in the basement. The Supreme Court used to meet in a basement? Yes. Catherine told me that after Marbury versus Madison, the court didn't rule something unconstitutional again until 1857, the infamous Dred Scott decision, where the court ruled that an enslaved person was not a citizen and had no rights. 
the Supreme Court didn't really kick into its modern, more powerful iteration until the 20th century. So if they weren't declaring laws constitutional or not, what were they doing? What are their constitutional powers? The Constitution establishes the Supreme Court, and it lays out that justices are appointed by the president with the Senate's approval. But it doesn't say how many justices there should be, though it does specify a chief justice. Originally, there weren't nine justices. There were five in the 1800s. And the number increased over the years via acts of Congress, cementing it at nine justices in 1869. It's left to the Congress to decide how the lower courts would be set up. There are some specific things that the U.S. Supreme Court is tasked with doing. One of those is settling disputes between the states. So if New York wants to sue New Jersey over a particular matter, the Supreme Court is there to settle some of those disputes. Other things, you know, involve cases involving uh, ambassadors and and, uh, these particular things. But... But, but it's so vague, and really the Supreme Court is not used as a trial court much anymore. The Supreme Court is what's called an appellate court, which means that it hears appeals. It's not like a trial court. There's no jury. So if someone loses a case in another court, they think it's not fair, they can appeal it up the chain. Appellate. Appeal. Yeah. How do cases get to that level where they're ruled upon by the highest court in the land? Here's Larry Robbins again. The Supreme Court, to my knowledge, is the only federal court and one of the few kinds of appellate courts that you have no inherent right to be heard in front of. Uh, You have to ask their permission, and they grant it only very rarely. It's a long process, and as Larry says, it's super rare, but it helps illustrate the entire federal court system instead of just those nine justices at the top. First off, Hannah, most trials in the U.S. are going to be in your state court. You stole a car, you got a divorce, you jumped a subway turnstile, state court. Federal courts are for when your case deals with the constitutionality of a law, uh, or if the United States is a party in the case, or if you broke a federal law. Currently, there are 94 federal trial courts, and those are divvied up into 13 circuits, kind of like the NCAA. All right, so it's like the West Coast is one circuit. Right, they're the Ninth Circuit. And what circuit are we in? We in New Hampshire are part of the First Circuit, which also includes Maine, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Puerto Rico, interestingly what? enough. Yeah. So if you lose a case in one of those 94 federal courts, you can appeal it to your circuit court. And a court of appeals trial has no jury. It's lawyers arguing in front of a panel of three judges. And if you lose that appeal, what happens? Then we are on the road to getting your case into the Supreme Court. A case begins with uh, an application to the Supreme Court to hear the case. This has a very fancy uh, name uh, with with a Latin component because lawyers like to sound as obscure as possible. So it's called a petition for a writ of certiorari. Petition for a writ of certiorari. What's called a cert petition for short. And what what a cert petition does is it says to the Supreme Court, you should hear my case. And like Larry said, the Supreme Court does not have to do it. Uh, The vast, vast majority, bordering on 98 or 99 percent, are denied. If four of the nine Supreme Court justices agree to hear a case, then it will get a hearing in the Supreme Court. And only about 100 of the nearly 7,000 cert petitions are granted. Are there any types of cases that tend to be granted more than others? Yes, and Larry had some tips on that. The most important thing you can say to get the Supreme Court interested in granting your case is that there is a 
question of federal law, because the Supreme Court is there to decide federal questions, not state law questions, but federal questions, either questions about federal statutes or the United States Constitution. And what you want to tell the court is, look, there is an important federal question that the courts of appeals, the lower federal courts, disagree about. There's hundreds of publications and websites out there that track these circuit splits where two circuit courts are divided on an issue. Uh, Even better, if you can say there are three circuits on one side of the question and four on the other side of the question, so that, you know, the issue has been uh, widely considered. Uh, The question has percolated in the courts of appeals, if you will. That's a... Supreme Court lawyers' uh, uh, term of art. Wait, I have a question about this. Yeah, go ahead. So the Supreme Court, a seemingly passive political body, does have some political power because they can decide what cases they want to hear or not. And presidents campaign on what kind of Supreme Court justice they'll appoint. But if a justice wanted to pass, say, a controversial ruling, they can't bring it up themselves. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Can they? No, they cannot. We, we talk a lot about how much power the court has. And I think some of the power of the court, particularly the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, has significant power in shaping a policy agenda. You know, if there's a, a ruling that they make, all of a sudden everybody's talking about it. And you point to Roe v. Wade in 1973, and we're still talking about that. It, it separates our political parties and our system. That's that's power that's setting an agenda. However, the power of the courts is really limited because the Supreme Court, you know, can't be watching, you know, TV and say, what what the heck's going on? Let's make a ruling. They have to wait for the process to begin. Okay, so that's how a case gets into the Supreme Court. What happens once you're in there? Have you actually have you been to the Supreme Court chamber? I have not. Have you? Not since seventh grade. Anyone can visit it and witness the oral arguments. It's sort of this hallowed date, the first Monday in October until about mid-April. The court hears arguments and they make decisions. And when they're in recess, they choose their next session's cases and they prepare for those. People will wait in line sometimes from 5 a.m., like a rock concert, to get a seat. In the years that I was in the SG's office, the Supreme Court heard many more cases than they do these days. In those years, which were 1986 to 1990, there were typically four arguments every day. Uh, That almost, I think, never happens anymore. The court doesn't grant as many cases as it used to. After the argument, usually the same week, they meet privately and they vote. The senior justice in the majority decides which justice, with a lot of help from their clerks, is going to write the opinion. Drafts circulate, 
edits are made. These opinions take time. Mostly, most of the time, there is a majority opinion, whether it's five to four or nine to zero. They they often on the court want to not have closely divided opinions because that doesn't look good for the court. Um, certainly, going forward, uh, that might not stand if you have a change in composition of the court. Uh, and then justices certainly that disagree can write dissenting opinions. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think, has written some of the more interesting ones, uh, uh, expressing her legal rationale for why she thinks the majority got it wrong. Uh, and what she thinks would be the proper course. Um, Some write concurring opinions, meaning they're part of the majority, they agree with the majority, but um, they may disagree on some other point or they may expand on um, some issues that the court did not agree to, did not address. Uh, So they'll talk about those particular things as well. And while the opinion and dissent lay out the legal reasoning for a decision, the ruling is usually one of these three things. Affirm reverse, or remand. Affirm is that the finding from the lower court is upheld, so the petitioner was unsuccessful in their appeal. Reverse is the opposite, where the lower court's ruling was an error, and it's overturned, and the petitioner wins the day. And finally, remand is where the case is sent back to the lower court for a retrial with any irregularities corrected. One thing I'm curious about goes back to something that Catherine said earlier about a court furthering a political agenda. Does the party of the president who appointed them have influence on their decisions? Uh, look, uh, I, I think I think it's possible to overstate the significance of who appointed a particular judge or justice. I'm close to agreement with my old friend who is now the Chief Justice John Roberts, who I think famously responded to one of the pres- President Trump's uh, tirades about Obama judges by saying there are no Obama judges, there are no Bush judges, there are just judges trying to do their level best. But I don't think I, you know anybody should be so naive as to imagine that political ideology has no impact, uh, it certainly does. Larry told me one thing about how political ideology affects the law, and it's something I'd never considered before. It's that right now such a high percentage of judges in the lower courts are conservative, and that means there's less disagreement between the circuits on rulings, which in turn means there are fewer cases presented to the Supreme Court for writs of certiorari. And this goes back to what Larry said, that the Supreme Court every year is hearing fewer and fewer cases. Last thing, these justices are appointed for life. They often outlive the presidents who appoint them. And they're not constitution-interpreting blank vessels. They have strong opinions, right? So how do they interact with each other when they're off the bench? Larry refused, smartly, I believe, uh, to go on the record about that. But Catherine had a specific example that I thought was just lovely. The late Justice Scalia, probably one of the most conservative jurists we've had on the U.S. Supreme Court, was best friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the more liberal justices we've seen in in the history of the court. And they had this love of opera together and uh, they would would go see operas and and they would have dinner, you know, with the spouses and were really the best of friends. And, you know, you can't find two really more opposite people. 
a lot of the justices have said, you know, it's not like in Congress where, you know, I'm going to yell at you for having your position. I respect your position. I may not agree with your position, but you have the right to say that and we move on. So I think the fact that they are all trained lawyers and um, have gone through the, the advocacy processes and in, in their careers and understand you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, uh, I, I think is particularly important. And I think that's how the court continues to operate. That's all for today's episode on the Judicial Branch. Today's episode was produced by me, uh, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy, Mm -hmm. with help from Samantha Searles. Erica Janik is our executive producer and burner of judicial commissions. Maureen McMurray only judges things at midnight. Music in this episode by Ton Starts Band. Thank you so much, Edwin. Chris Zabriskie, Doug Maxwell, The Grand Affair, Emily Sprague. I love her nut stuff. Have you listened to any of her stuff? Yes, I have. It's really good. Young Carts and the MIT Symphony Orchestra. Archival Supreme Court audio comes from oyeoyez.org, the greatest, most wonderful resource from Cornell's Legal Information Institute. And I got two quick people to thank. First off, Keith Hip Hughes, whose video on Marbury versus Madison I watched a hundred times. Check it out. And second, Professor Michael Brown from Emerson College, the man responsible for the fact that I shall never forget that Article 3, Section 2, Paragraph 1 says, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution. Civics 101 is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Well, well, if it isn't William Marbury. May I help you, sir? Ah, yes. Is this the store that sells judicial accoutrements? Oh, God save you, Mr. Marbury. What can I get for you? Yes, I have a need of so many things. A hat and a wig and a robe. Whatever it is the judges get these days. Well, I can help you there, Master Marbury, but it'd make much more sense for me to sell you that once you have the actual job. No, look here, sir. I am to be a judge. And you best marshal your words with better care, or I can make life very difficult for you. Well, no offense, Mr. Marbury, but talk like that makes me think you'll be a very shabby justice indeed. Not the way I see it. Are we actually doing this right now? I'm going to be a prudent judge. I'll hand down wise decisions. Where it's just the justices I've met, they actually have commissions. I'll be legislating from the bench. My rulings will be famous. Brushing up on torts and contract law and writs of mandamus. But first, I think John Marshall will have to budge. Oh, I just can't wait to be judge. Oh, crap. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 